Someone asked me a couple of weeks ago when mention was made of the eagerness uh, to find a new pastor if it hurt my feelings. Uh, said it sounds like they want to get rid of you. But uh, let me affirm and assert and underscore I'm very happy with uh, what God has called us to do here. And finding a new pastor is as much uh, a part of my prayer time uh, and tease time uh, as we are here for the time we are, and we're uh, very enthusiastic and very hopeful uh, for the future of Carriage Lane. Uh, Well, we've been reading in the book of Hebrews, and uh, we're in this kind of dense section, and I am going to cover a lot today because, uh, you know, some of the details of what's going on, I think, in Hebrews 9 might be fun to pick apart in a Sunday school class, but, um, you know, the larger concern, you know, for me in, in our times like this is how do we take the things that we know are true, we who are Christians, uh, and how do we um, make them uh, applicable, relevant, whatever word you want to use, into our own lives? You know, how does the urgency, you know, get in a sense recaptured? All of us have uh, read that critique of the church in Revelation. I think it's the church at at Ephesus where they are admonished to um, recapture or return to their first love. And a lot of us can say, yeah, you know, uh, when I look back, there was a time when I was more compelled, you know, I was more uh, captivated uh, with Jesus than I am currently. And that's, that's part of the work of the devil. It's part of his accusing work, part of his slandering work uh, to get after us. But uh, there are things taking place here that go right to the heart uh, here in Hebrews chapter 9. Again, to reiterate, we are talking about an oppressed community, uh, and this is a letter being written to them, or possibly uh, some reputable scholars say it's a sermon being preached to them. Uh, But they are an oppressed community, and their faith is being ripped apart. It seems as we read it that they have stopped meeting together, that they don't recognize each other on the street. They're afraid of being identified as Christians. Uh, In fact, when I read those details, they sound to me a lot like uh, Peter on the night that Jesus was betrayed. Uh, You remember him, you know, being very bold when he was with the other disciples and with Jesus, you know, I'll stand fast. Uh, But when he got out into the crowd… As Jesus predicted, he uh, denied that he knew the Lord three times before the cock crows. I've actually got a a friend, I I think I could call him a good friend, I haven't spoken to him, Uh, but we got word uh, that this uh, man has left the faith. Uh, He'd gone to the elders of the church, church where I previously served, said, I'd like you to take my name off the roll. Um. And it's a, a gripping reality for us. This is a guy, I, I remember meeting him for the first time. We picked him up at a subway stop and carted him off to a Super Bowl party. And uh, from there, watched him join the church, meet and marry one of the young women in the church, three daughters, baptized them. Uh, always s- stepped away from being elected an officer, although he'd nominated many times. But now he just says that my doubts have overwhelmed me. And I still intend to come to church and support my wife and family, uh, but I won't be attending the Lord's Supper. And so this is, this is 
horrific. I mean, you can imagine the pain of that. And I would imagine a lot of you are, uh, know people just like this. And what do you do with that? How do you understand someone walking away? Well, this is what the writer of Hebrews is dealing with, people who are walking away. And he wants to persuade them. He, he chides them a little bit. But, but more, his heart is engaged with them. You know, how can I persuade you? How can I keep you from walking away? Because that's what they're tempted to do. Uh, central to his plea in this middle section, this dense middle section of Hebrews, is the assertion that Jesus has become a great high priest uh, to those who are connected to him by faith. Now, that requires some unpacking. What does it mean that he's become a great high priest? The first thing mentioned back in chapter 4 is that uh, because he's a great high priest, he is sympathetic, and, uh, and he is for them, and he understands what it's like to be them, and he understands all of their weaknesses all of their travails. He was tempted in every way that they were tempted, yet did not sin. Uh, But he understands human frailty. He understands human weakness, so he can be sympathetic and stand with them as a faithful priest would do. Uh, But then, moving more deeply into the Old Testament record, uh, the writer said that Jesus is actually an eternal priest, uh, and the way that he referenced that was he pulled this obscure verse out of Psalm 110, Uh, mentioning an obscure character named Melchizedek uh, from Genesis 14. Uh, But the large lesson of that was that Jesus is an eternal priest, that he's a priest forever. In some ways, you could kind of say that he he was a priest before Melchizedek was a priest, but he's still a priest, and he serves as a priest in heaven, if we can use that language. We'll get more detailed in a minute. Uh, Last week, we saw that Jesus, as the great high priest, is the bringer of the new covenant that's mentioned in Jeremiah chapter 31. Uh, And now, you know, moving even more deeply, uh, Jesus is enacting a true and perfect sacrifice in the heavenly tabernacle. He's the bringer of the new covenant because he's the mediator of the new covenant, And it seems a little arcane to the naked eye. If you're not familiar with the Bible, you might think, how in the world can this have anything to do with me? How much do I need to understand? Uh, But the writer, preacher, is really trying to do a deep dive into what happened at the cross. This is where we always need to get to. Uh, It's not just that Jesus sympathizes with you although that's a great comfort. It's not just that he intercedes for you always. It's not just that he's brought in this new arrangement with God. But there's something even more profound taking place so that, and here's the interesting verse in Hebrews, so that your conscience may be cleansed, so that your conscience may be clean. And that really means so that you may be clean. That's really what he's dealing with. So, let me read Hebrews 9. Um, it, it's dense enough uh, that I'm actually going to read from the New Living Translation. I feel like some of these more technical questions need to be rounded off. I think the second sentence in the ESV isn't even a sentence. So, let's just, uh, let me read. And, and, and you can, you know, simply listen if you'd like to. If you want to follow along and 
notice that I'm reading something different, you may, but faith comes from hearing, right? Isn't that what the apostle says? Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So here's Hebrews 9. That first covenant between God and Israel had regulations for worship and a place of worship here on earth. There were two rooms in that tabernacle. The first room, in the first room were a lampstand, a table, a sa- and sacred loaves of bread on the table. This room was called the holy place. Then there was a curtain, and behind the curtain was a second room called the most holy place. In that room were a gold incense altar and a wooden chest called the Ark of the Covenant, which was covered with gold on all sides. Inside the ark were a gold jar containing manna, Aaron's staff that sprouted leaves, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of divine glory, whose wings stretched out over the ark's cover, the place of atonement. But we cannot explain these things in detail now. When these things were all in place, the priests regularly entered the first room as they performed their religious duties. But only the high priest ever entered the most holy place and only once a year. And he always offered blood for his own sins and for the sins of the people, for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. By these regulations, the Holy Spirit revealed that the entrance to the most holy place was not freely open as long as the tabernacle and the system it represented were still in use. This is an illustration pointing to the present time. For the gifts and sacrifices that the priests offer are not able to cleanse the consciences of the people who bring them. For that old system deals only with food and drink and various cleansing ceremonies, physical regulations that were in effect only until a better system could be established. So Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of this created world. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. That is why he is the one who mediates the new covenant between God and the people so that all who are called can receive the internal inheritance God has promised them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of the sins they had committed under the first covenant. Now, when someone leaves a will, it's necessary to prove that the person who made it is dead. The will goes into effect only after the person's death. While the person who made it is still alive, this will cannot be put into effect. That is why even the first covenant was put into effect with the blood of an animal. After Moses had read each of God's commandments to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats along with water and sprinkled both the book of God's law and all the people using hyssop branches and scarlet wool. Then he said, this blood confirms the covenant God has made with you. And in the same way, he sprinkled blood on the tabernacle and on everything used for worship. 
In fact, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. That is why the tabernacle and everything in it, which were copies of things in heaven, had to be purified by the blood of animals. But the real things in heaven had to be purified with far better sacrifices than the blood of animals. For Christ did not enter into a holy place made with human hands, which was only a copy of the true one in heaven. He entered into heaven itself to appear now before God on our behalf. And he did not enter heaven to offer himself again and again like the high priest here on earth who enters the most holy place year after year with the blood of an animal. If that had been necessary, Christ would have had to die again and again ever since the world began. But now, once for all time, he has appeared at the end of the age to remove sin by his own death as a sacrifice. And just as each person is destined to die once and after that comes judgment, so also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again, not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for Him. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Have mercy. Okay, so the passage deals primarily with purification, uh, purification of the flesh and purification of the conscience. Uh, In Israel, you know that cleanliness was a big deal, Uh, Not the way your grandmother says it when she says that cleanliness is next to godliness, uh, but rather uncleanness was a symbol for sin. It was a symbol for rebellion, uh, which was a big deal in their arrangement with God, in their covenant. Uh, If you read Leviticus 11, 12, 13, 14, uh, 15, there were clean and unclean animals. Uh, You had to stay away from the latter. Uh, there, were, there was a detailed list of which animals are clean and which animals were unclean, uh, but don't miss the point. Uh, what the, what the, the law is conveying is you have to be clean. You have to be clean if you're going to have anything to do with God. Skin diseases were unclean. Uh, so was childbirth. Childbirth rendered a woman unclean. So, you know, an, a natural process that wasn't even Uh, something that had to do with a disease, rendered someone unclean. Uh, Bodily discharges were unclean. Any kind of those diseases rendered you unclean. And all of those chapters lead you up to Leviticus chapter 16, where you have these detailed instructions concerning concerning, uh, the Day of Atonement. Uh, Now, that's what's happening here in this chapter. The Day of Atonement is being described. Uh, One day out of the year, the high priest, go back and read the details. They're kind of fascinating. They're kind of dramatic. And if you can read any of the ancient accounts of it, it was a very dramatic day in Israel. Uh, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies in order to uh, make sacrifices for the sins of the people. It's interesting here, I don't know if you noticed it as I was reading it, that it, these are for the sins that people committed unwittingly. Uh, the Day of Atonement was not for high-handed sins. That required something different. But this priest would go in, his garments were immaculately laundered, he'd been set apart uh, for weeks before so that he would be ceremonially clean. You probably know that uh, he had bells sewn into the hem of his garment 
uh, so that people could hear the tinkling of the bells while he was moving around, getting his work done, and also uh, in, in the possibility that the Lord took offense and struck him dead. Uh, if the bells stopped ringing, they would be, there would be trouble. Uh, there is an ancient account where when the priest emerged from the Holy of Holies, it was this great celebration. People had been holding their breath while he'd been in there uh, administering the sacrifices, sprinkling the blood. Uh, and when he came back out, there was this great joy, this great hoorah. Uh, the sins had been forgiven. Now, it's hard for us, again, to relate to that ceremonially, but in, in, in real life, it's, you know, we, we're well acquainted with, with this. Uh, we like to be clean. We take showers. We brush our teeth. We have toilet paper in our bathrooms. We wash our clothes. If something is stained, we either throw it away or we only use it to work in the garden. Uh, We are big on cleanliness. We like to be clean, and we understand that if we're not clean, we become less socially acceptable. And so we pay a lot of attention to that. Well, Israel understood that that physical uncleanness had spiritual repercussions. And so Israel had laws to govern uncleanness. Sacrifices could be made, probations endured, and all of those provided uh, for the purification of, of the body, the purification of the flesh. That is an outward purification. And what the writer here is trying to say is that the conscience remained unaddressed, uh, as it does with us. And that's what we want to try to think about a little bit in a minute. That all of this outward cleanness is good in as far as it goes, but it doesn't go very far because we still have the problem of a troubled conscience, or maybe I should say we should. <clears throat> We've got something going on uh, in our hearts that gives evidence of our alienation from God. So, what the writer does here is he talks about what Jesus has done, mimicking Uh, what the high priest did on the Day of Atonement. Uh, Back in chapter 8, he talked about, uh, the writer talked about the the copy and shadow of heavenly things. Moses was given these very clear instructions. Got to go back to Exodus again, uh, which you might be in with us in the McShane readings. Uh, But very clear instructions concerning the dimensions, the construction materials, the implements of the tabernacle. God was the architect of the tabernacle. In Exodus 25, he says to Moses, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so shall you make it. The temple was constructed in order to look like a heavenly tabernacle that already existed in some fashion. We can't comprehend it. It's certainly not physical, but this physical construction is meant to replicate that. And in Exodus, there are seven chapters of instructions on how you ought to build it, and there are six more chapters that detail the actual construction according to those instructions. So again, twice over, you hear about this, and it's underscored, and you try to figure it out. What's going on? Why all of this detail? What is trying to be communicated to us? Well, here in the first ten verses… The activities of the priests uh, are described according to the architecture. Uh, But the Holy Spirit indicates 
that that was insufficient and that it was only a copy, only symbolic, only a shadow. There were two serious limitations to the old system. One is that access to God was severely limited. Now, again, you have to get your brain around this. You and I are used to thinking about immediate access to God. And, and I would suggest that, that that might not be all that biblical. We think of immediate access to God when, in fact, in the Bible, I would, I would almost say there's almost no such thing. Uh, maybe some of the other pastors can speak to me about this tomorrow. Uh, in the Bible, access to God is never immediate. It is always through a mediator. There is a mediator that grants you access to God. Now, we have, you know, in our Western pop culture, you know, we have in just kind of the lazy way that we tend to think about spiritual things, this casual notion of waltzing into the presence of God anytime we want to. You know, we imagine God being kind of lonely and grateful for the attention. You know, that that we pray to Him. He said, oh, man, I had nothing to do today. I'm glad to hear from you. And that, that's not really true. You know, we, we have this notion of Jesus being such a wonderful, attractive, engaging person. You know, as though if Jesus were to show up one day that we would all run up to him and say, oh, it's so good to see you. In, in fact, there are more pictures in the Bible that would indicate that if Jesus were to show up, that you and I would be diving underneath the pews. Peter had that clarity. Do you remember that? Uh, He had been with Jesus. It's kind of fun to trace out. But in Luke 5, again, there had been other occasions. You have to get into the Gospel of John where Peter was well acquainted with Jesus. Uh, But Jesus is preaching and says, you know, I need to get offshore a little bit. And uh, Peter says, well, okay, you know, glad to serve, glad to let you use my boat. And he pushes off a little bit, he preaches, and then he says to Peter, throw your nets out. And again, you can sense the exasperation in Peter's voice. I'm the one who knows fishing, not you. I know fishing, and I know that tonight, none of the fish in this lake are on this side of the lake. But because you say so, in order to be polite, I'll throw the net out. And all the fish in the lake swim into the net. You remember the story, right? And they're pulling up, and the nets are bursting. And Peter looks back at Jesus with new eyes. And he begins to see who he is. And what does he say? Do you remember? He says, depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. When he saw Jesus as he was, he was diving underneath the pew. He wanted to get away. So access to God in the old system was severely limited, It was reflective of the fact that God is holy, but only the high priest and only once a year. So access, again, was severely limited. The second inadequacy uh, was that the sacrifices finally were inadequate uh, to calm the conscience. And that's the big idea here. Uh, what about the conscience? What's being described in this chapter is transcendent. There is a real tabernacle, a real dwelling place of God that is inaccessible to our senses. 
The, temp, the tabernacle built by the Israelites was modeled on the real thing, but Jesus enters the real thing. And he enters the real thing not with the blood of goats or bulls, but with his own blood, and he enacts a true and perfect sacrifice. Again, the references to the Day of Atonement. It's a crucial symbol, but in a sense, it's a sham. The prophet Zechariah had a vision of the temple. Do you remember this vision? He saw the high priest, whose name was Joshua that year, standing in the temple. And you, you need to understand, he had these immaculately laundered. Everything was done in order to make sure that he was perfectly clean. But when Zechariah sees in the vision, he sees that he's wearing filthy garments. And filthy is a, is a colorful word. The garments were stained and stinky. And the devil is there to accuse him. Amazingly, God gives Joshua clean garments, takes his sins away, and promises a final redeemer. And then 500 years later, of course, the real Joshua shows up. And what the writer of Hebrews says here in verse 12 is that he secured an eternal redemption. And in that perfect redemption, that eternal redemption, was the cleansing of the conscience. Now, how's a conscience supposed to function? How's a conscience supposed to work? You think about this? It's a big question for me. How is my conscience supposed to work? And I have relied on these passages in Hebrews about a clean conscience, and we're going to get to it again in chapter 10, uh, as, for as long as I've been a Christian, I think. I mean, as soon as I read Hebrews, it came alive to me. But how, how do you have a clean conscience? How's the conscience supposed to work? You know, the, the classic work on this, I don't know if you can remember back to your high school days or college days. I was a phys ed major, so I didn't read it until I was out of college. Uh, but it's Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but this story is a rich, multi-level, deeply Christian novel. You know, I know that some people are interested in reading Christian novels, and if you are, uh, I would say you can do no worse than to read The Russians. But Dostoevsky's hero, Raskolnikov, uh, you know, starts out as kind of the, the, the quintessential in, member of the intelligentsia. And he actually writes a paper where he says, you know, we ought to really be willing to put to death uh, people who aren't as beneficial to our society, you know, in order that those who can be of great benefit to the society might thrive. Now, of course, Raskolnikov has in his brain that he's one of these smart people, and unhappily, he's impoverished. So he schemes, and then he backs out of, but then he gets energized again, and he murders a woman uh, for her wealth. And the murder is so horrific uh, that he even forgets to grab the wealth. And then the rest of the novel is him wrestling with his conscience, being hammered by his conscience. 
and, that, and, fi- and, and, and these opportunities exist for him to get away with it. Uh, but finally, in the end, he goes and confesses his crime. And he's sent, off, sent packing to Siberia uh, to pay uh, for his crime. It's a, it's a great story. It doesn't feel like it's a, uh, uh, an, an awful story in the end because he is redeemed. I think that, that uh, wise commentators have said that in the end, in the epilogue, he is converted. And he takes advantage of the blood of Christ. Uh, and he is united to the woman who leads him uh, to Christ. Now, the interesting thing is, is that there's a, there was a follow-up to crime and punishment. I don't know if you ever saw the movie, Woody Allen, I'm, I'm kind of dating myself as an old man, but he did a movie called Crimes and Misdemeanors. Anybody ever see this movie? I really do date myself with this thing. But Woody Allen is kind of the quintessential modern man. And this is completely a play on crime and punishment. In crimes and misdemeanors, a woman is murdered, and then her, the conspirators who are involved in her murder wrestle with this. One's conscience is continually troubled. The other one says, I forget about it. And at the end of the movie, he says, what are you going to do with your conscience? He says, don't worry. It gets better in the end. And he walks away, apparently scot-free. It's haunting. Now, it gets back to this notion of how is a conscience supposed to function? What do you make of a guilty conscience? Do you have a guilty conscience? What are the things that make you feel guilty? And, and, and we're opening up kind of a whole chapter in a psychology book at this point because there are two ways to think about guilt, two ways to think about a conscience. One, one thing that we call guilt in our lives today is basically a general discomfort. I'm not all that I should be. I'm not doing my best. I'm not productive. I feel ashamed of my lack of success. Ashamed. I feel guilty about that. My body is not shaped the way that I want it to be shaped, so I'm ashamed of my body. Shame is the word that is used there. Shame which is connected to guilt. I don't know that I'll ever reach my dreams, and that makes me feel guilty. I feel guilty for the ill behavior of my family. I feel guilty for a whole bunch of other things that have nothing to do with me. That's one way that we've got of talking about guilt. Another way that we talk about guilt is specific regret about wrongdoing where you, you, you say, I did wrong, I violated the law, I wronged someone, I did some damage, I was dishonest, and I have retained the benefit. Now, in the modern world, we, we take both of those things and lump them into the category of guilt. And so what, what you know, our modern solution to that is uh, to go easy on yourself, to distance yourself from the guilt. Uh, Freud's lasting contribution is you feel guilty, don't worry about it. If you feel guilty, stop feeling guilty. Most counselors that you go to, if you say, I'm feeling terribly guilty, they say, well, don't feel guilty. Feel better. And, And this is deeply problematic in us. Uh, relativizing guilt 
not being able to peel apart those two kinds of guilt uh, are immensely destructive. I mean, on the one hand, it's good to have a Bible in your hand and to know what it is that God requires and what it is that He doesn't require. And, and oftentimes I find myself and others wanting to invert those two senses of guilt. I feel terribly guilty about the things over which I have no control, and I don't feel guilty at all about the things that I actually do. That's, that's kind of the weird world that we're in. You know, the, the famous book many years ago, Healing the Shame That Binds You. You know, it was rightly pointing at all of these other things that you should not feel ashamed about. You know, you should not feel ashamed about the way your business turned. You should not feel ashamed about the misbehavior of other people in your family. You should not feel ashamed about the body that God has given you. But you ought to pay very close attention to what it is that God has called you to do. And when you violate that, you ought to feel ashamed. You really ought to. Uh, One of the places in Jeremiah where the Israelites are being condemned, you know, one of the criticisms against them was they have forgotten how to blush. They don't even know how to be ashamed anymore. Again, about these real things, about these real things that they have done that require atonement, that require remediation. I, I read in my little devotional this morning, and this kind of lit me up again, as it tends to do. The confession this morning, uh, this is, again, uh, I've mentioned this before, Be Thou My Vision, comes from the Middleburg Liturgy. Middleburg was a little town in the Netherlands, and there was a a group of English refugees there uh, on the run from Bloody Mary, and they wrote a liturgy that has lasted. And I'll just read you the end of it. We confess, O Lord, that our misdeeds have inflamed Your wrath against us, yet considering that by Your grace we call upon Your name and make profession of Your truth, maintain, we ask You, the work that You have begun in us, to the end that all the world may know that You are our God and Savior. I think that's something explicitly that Tim prayed this morning, so that all the world would know. And then it wraps up, you know that those You have destroyed and brought to confusion Do not set forth your praises, but the heavy souls, the humble hearts, the consciences oppressed and laden with the grievous burden of their sins, and therefore thirst after your grace, they shall set forth your praise and glory. Amen. Amen. How's a conscience supposed to work? Well, in the modern day, you know, we're told to silence the voice of conscience. But in fact, and and, and we use Hebrews to fuel that. That's far from what Hebrews is talking about. Uh, the, the, The letter of Hebrews imagines an act of conscience, an act of conscience that is interacting with the Word of God and with the law of God so that you know what you need. You know that you need the grace of God. You know, there's this fascinating story, and I'll wrap up with this. And, and, uh, well, you know the the gospel narrative, but the commentary on it in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 has always been riveting to me. 
Uh, There is a place there where the Apostle Paul compares worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. And he says worldly sorrow leads to death, you know, but godly sorrow uh, can lead to repentance and salvation. And then it says, and it leaves no regret. And I thought, what a… it knocked me off my chair. No regret? A godly sorrow leading to no regret? How does that happen? Well, most of the commentators will say that this is a description of what happened to Judas and what happened to Peter. That Peter had the godly sorrow, or he, Peter, had, yeah, Peter had the godly sorrow, but Judas had the worldly sorrow. There was no solution for him. There was nothing to be done about this complete shame that he had brought on himself and his house. And so he did what any reasonable person would do, and he killed himself. Peter has the godly sorrow. Peter, whose betrayal was maybe even just as bad as Judas's, was repeated three times. And it was prophesied about in the midst of his boast that he would never do such a thing. I want to look at this on Easter Sunday morning. Um, But Peter went out and wept bitterly. And then there was a certain time when he saw Jesus in a distance, again in a boat, and he just absolutely couldn't wait to get to him. He wanted to get to him. And this is the difference between a good conscience, a bad conscience, a lively conscience, and a dead conscience, is the lively conscience propels you to Christ. It gets you to him as quickly as you can possibly get there. The dead conscience says, I got to stay away from Christ. I got to stay away from Christians. I got to stay away from the church. But the lively conscience that seeks its cleansing makes a beeline to Christ. And that produces freedom. That produces an unswervable faith. That produces the joy of salvation. And that produces the urgency. that is the happy home of worship. That's what's promised in the gospel, a real sacrifice for real guilt. Let's pray. Uh, Father, it is the case that for many of us, to one degree or another, we have forgotten how to blush. And so, the promise of a clean conscience means little to us. Jesus said that when He left, You would send the Spirit that would convict the world of uh, sin and of righteousness. And we need the Spirit to convict us. Not to the end that we would grovel, certainly not to the end that we would somehow attain something, uh, but because we want this good news to be more riveting to us, uh, we want to know the power 
to walk away from our sinful patterns. Uh, We want to know the beauty and the clarity of uh, self-awareness. We want desperately to be able to love each other uh, deeply from the heart and to seek one another out and to serve and to uh, uh, hold each other in high esteem. So, Father, all of this requires the Spirit's work in our hearts. Uh, Please be at work in us as we sing and close. In Jesus' name, amen.